This week's episode of the Ortho Show podcast is brought to you by Miyok Orthopedics. Miyok Orthopedics is leading a shift in the treatment of anterior cruciate ligament tears from reconstruction to restoration with the bare implant. Bridge-enhanced ACL restoration facilitates healing of the torn ACL. Unlike reconstruction, the bare implant does not require a second surgical wound site to remove a healthy tendon from another part of the leg, nor the use of a donor tendon. The bare implant acts as a bridge between the two ends of the torn ACL by injecting the patient's own blood into the implant, enabling the body to heal. The bare implant has been used in over 1,700 procedures to date, including many leading sports medicine institutions across the country. Find out more about the bare implant and let the healing begin. Another great episode of the Ortho Show podcast. We are bringing you one of the queens of orthopedic surgery, Sabrina Strickland, who's an orthopedic surgeon and sports medicine specialist at HSS, the Hospital for Special Surgery. For some crazy reason, she's decided to dedicate her professional life to the patellofemoral joint, and we are all better for it. Uh, she's amazing as far as the technology, the research that's going behind it. She's big into ACLs as well. Just a great story about a woman who is an amazing orthopedic surgeon, a great mother, as well as a great wife. I know you're going to like this episode so much. Dr. Scott Sigmund, hashtag follow the fro. From Medical Media, this is The Author Show. Hello world, Dr. Scott Sigmund, your favorite opioid-sparing orthopedic surgeon here for another episode of the Ortho Show podcast, where everyone knows we bring the best of the best in orthopedics. Uh, today, we have one of the queens of orthopedic surgery, Sabrina Strickland, who's an orthopedic surgeon, sports medicine specialist, associate professor of orthopedic surgery at Cornell and the Hospital for Special Surgery. She is an absolute guru when it comes to the knee for patellofemoral issues, ACL and cartilage. Sabrina, what a pleasure it is to have you on the show today. Thanks so much for having me. It's my pleasure. Terrific to have you on. So we're on a roll here. We had Liz Matskin on last week. So we're rolling through all the important women orthopedic surgeons uh, in the U.S., which we love. But we always like to start at the beginning. So tell us, you know, where you were born, where the passion, you know, for orthopedics came. Was it early for sports? Is there a doctor in the family? We love to hear all that good stuff. Uh, so I uh, was born in Western Massachusetts, but I started elementary school in Acton, Massachusetts, and um, I had an incredible fifth grade teacher, and he took us on a zillion field trips. So we went to the wind tunnel at MIT, and we had heart surgeons come in and dissect cow hearts, and from fifth grade, I decided I was going to be a surgeon. That's so cool. That's like one of the earlier people. I think we had one in kindergarten who wrote a note to himself or something, but no, I love, love that story. Where in Western Mass were you born? I was born in Pittsfield. My dad was a professor at Berkshire Community College in um, computer science. And so I knew one thing for sure, I was not going to be a computer scientist. That was back in the GE days, you know, when GE was, when Pittsfield was flourishing as a center, you know, of excellence back then, doctors, lawyers, and the schools and all of that. But then you came back out east to Acton and, you know, I practice, my practice is in North Chelmsford. So we take care of a lot of, uh, of those Acton people right now. So I love that part of the story too. Um, so, uh, so, all right. So fifth grade, 
you're going to be a surgeon. There's no question about that. You got a few steps to take before you get there. Uh, so off to Cornell undergrad. Was there any doctors in the family at all that was sort of a mentor or help at all? No, no doctors in the family, but a sophomore year of high school, then my parents had moved to uh, Bolton, Massachusetts. So I went to Neshoba for high school. Uh, I developed or became symptomatic from a spondylolisthesis, a spine problem, and ended up having surgery at Boston Children's when I was 14. And uh, technology back then was not what it is today. And so I ended up in a cast from my knee to right under my my arm for three months and missed most of my sophomore year of high school. And that was the point where I decided I wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon, not necessarily a spine surgeon, just because um, I ended up perfect. I have absolutely no problems with my back for the last 35 years. So isn't it amazing, you know, what we do now? I mean, you were probably lying there in terrible pain. They got you in some hip spike a cast for three months, right? I mean, that's, that's Meshuggah. We, we, we don't do that. We're like, we're doing outpatient spine fusions right now of like under like local anesthetic. It's just amazing to me really how far we've come. So, so I love that story. So, you know, I was thinking it was going to be a sports injury, but it's, it turns no, out that it was major spine surgery. No, yeah, it wasn't a sports injury. I mean, I was a runner. I ran track and cross country. And after my spine surgery, I um, pivoted and um, joined the ski team. Um, and I I went to Cornell to be a doctor and I I never, ever second guessed it. Meaning um, the one thing I did do is study abroad in Italy, which which meant that I hadn't finished my pre-med requirements till the end of college. So um, unfortunately, I had to spend a year in Crested Butte, Colorado skiing while I applied to med school. Um, That's a shame. It must have been really difficult. I'm not sure was, I got through that. It was terrible. Um, <laughs> I but, love it. Um, uh, it certainly um, increased my uh, my skiing. Meaning, I I I skied a lot back then, and all my kids subsequently ski raced, and we're a big skiing family. And I take care of a ton of skiing injuries, and so um, I love that sport. No, good for you, because most of us. You know, if you knew you were going to go to medical school, it was a grind, right? I mean, you'd stay home for spring breaks. You had to study for the MCATs. You had to get all your pre-med requirements in. So there wasn't really an opportunity to, to go abroad. So the fact that you just, you know, decided to do that and then had a gap year to, to you know, let your mind and you know, sort of get you know dialed in and ski and, and just have a great time before you entered, you know, the, the craziness of medical school and residency back in that day, for sure. No, I was definitely ready to go back to school. Like I'm not, I, I'm not a ski bum. So I, I was happy for, you know, some reasons, but I was also happy to be getting back into the grind. All right. So then it's off to Chicago to Rush Medical School, which is an amazing medical school. Always has uh, had a very strong orthopedic, you know, following and department there. So I'm sure you had some great mentors. You want to give some shout outs in the process of helping you get through into residency? So yes, I was on the arthroplasty service. Well, first I was on sports for two weeks um, and Bernie Bach on Bernie Bach service, who is a good friend to this day. He actually came to my second wedding um, five years ago. I married an orthopedic surgeon and um, Aaron Rosenberg was my mentor on my month long arthroplasty rotation. Um, I, he and none of them actually ever made me feel that I was different. I, I never thought it was unusual that I was going into orthopedics as a woman, even though we're only 6%. Um, we might be up to 7% now, but um, I absolutely loved orthopedic surgery. I, I liked arthroplasty. I liked sports. Um, 
ultimately I chose sports as my field. And I mean, it's really great to hear. I and mean, we've interviewed a number of, of female orthopedic surgeons and there's always some stories, you know, you know, of, of some times where uh, back in the day you weren't treated equally and there was a lot of misogynist uh, activity. And, but it's, it's good, always great to hear when we, we talk to, to female surgeons that have been through the process and were just treated equally as everybody else. And, and here you are today, which is I'm sure a great reason for you to mentor uh, future uh, women orthopedic surgeons as they come through. Bernie Bach, obviously one of the earliest leaders of sports medicine and orthopedics. What a great person to work with. So, uh, so you're at Rush and it's, you know, from fifth grade on, it's going to be, you know, a surgeon. Now it's going to be an orthopedic surgeon. And so you might as well go to one of the top residencies in the country if you can get in, right? And so off to HSS you go. So I rotated here for a month. My chief president was Brian Cole, who ended up back at, at Rush, um, still a good friend of mine. And um, I was lucky enough to match at HSS. And then I stayed here both. I was here for residency. I stayed here for fellowship. And um, I try to encourage my residents to kind of go off and see see another another way of doing things. But for me at the time, um, the right thing was to stay here. And we're a pretty big sports department. I think we've tripled in size since then. Um, so there are plenty of people that I hadn't worked with yet. Yeah, I mean, you know, what a great place to be. And there's just tremendous people and a great learning experience. Russ Warren, who I'm sure you were working with at the time. What was your experience in the Giants locker room? Was there any sort of pushback? This is 20 years ago. So I was not the fellow covering the Giants, but I did do a, a research project um, with Dr. Warren, which meant that I had some trips to the training room. And um, I, I never, I, I don't know what, there was something wrong with me, but I really never felt any different. I mean, I wasn't going into the locker room when everybody was changing. I was going into more to the training room to examine their shoulders for a study. And I, I didn't feel like players treated me any differently, but I think it would, it, it's a very hard job to be a team physician. And um, that's not something I've done, you know, in practice, I've concentrated on operating and doing research and raising three kids, but um I, I, I didn't, I didn't feel particularly different. My, the team coverage I did as a fellow was I covered professional women's soccer. There was a brief period where um, they had a team in New York and um, that was great because I think we had a lot more autonomy. I think um, we were given more responsibility taking care of a new team than potentially you, you get to have as a fellow. No, I mean, that's, it's so true. And, and to become a professional, you know, sports medicine team physician it's a real you really need to know your stuff and it's not just about the surgery and the techniques it's about how you're managing these players you're not anybody's best friend you're there to care for them you're their doctor etc so learning that sort of responsibility i think is really you know super important if that's the field that you go into but it sounds like you know you know sports medicine was it but you wanted to take care of patients research was important to you so out of fellowship it looks like you stayed in new york for a couple of years at the BI in Albert Einstein, did we do our yep, research so okay? All right, good. I did, yeah, I did. I joined Kevin Plancher's group. Um, so I was with Kevin's group for two years and pretty much um, I had I'd sort of had an out if I wanted to go back to HSS and I was I ultimately decided that I preferred academic medicine. I liked working with residents and fellows. When I came back um, to HSS, I worked a day and a half week at the Bronx VA with our residents. So. Um, did some crazy cases there because generally you don't go to the VA for your small meniscal tear. Um, and as my practice grew at HSS, it morphed more and more into a, 
a practice specializing in patellofemoral surgery. You know, I love it as as we're getting older, you know, you and I are contemporaries and these names pop out, you know, and still, you know, the Brian Coles, the Bernie Box, Kevin Blanchers, Russ Ward, you know, all of these people, now your friends and colleagues and, you know, really making a difference here two, three decades now, you know, into clinical practice. So, so it wasn't just at HSS when you made the move, though, you stayed you know, on 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 faculty at the VA for a period of time as well, right? And I love that. I mean, I was the chief resident at the Boston VA, and what a great learning you know ground for us as residents, and the commitment as an attending to have all of these options of things that you can do and still be able to care for our VIPs, the veterans in pain. I like to say so. You know, I think that's really special that that's something that you devoted time and energy to early in your career. I would have loved to stay longer. It's just, you can only do so much. And so if you're trying to fit your whole practice into three and a half days, a day and a half at the VA, um, and, you know, try to go to some school plays and uh, lacrosse games, there just wasn't time at a certain point uh, for that. Maybe when I retire, I'll go back there. How old are your kids now? We won't do names, but how old are the kids? Uh, So my twins are 18. They just finished their freshman year of college, one at BC, one at Cornell. And then my oldest is... um, she just finished junior year at Cornell, but she's going to law school next year at Cornell because they have a program where you go directly from junior year. So, so uh, underachievers, just like their mother, which is wonderful. And, you know, but so tell us a little bit about that. You said it's like three and a half days was your clinical practice. And then you were still at home, you know, helping to raise, you know, the children as well. Tell us about the demands of, of both. I mean, that's not easy to be able to be good at everything. So how did you really manage that? Well, you can't do everything at the same time. So definitely I dialed back when they were really small as far as my my clinical practice was much slower than it is today. I really didn't do research for my first maybe six years of practice. And then once they're in school, you know, they're leaving at eight o'clock, you're leaving at eight o'clock, maybe they're home at 3.30 some days, but all my kids did sports. So there were plenty of days where they would get home at the same time as me, but I would just make sure that I was home a few days a week at five o'clock so I could eat dinner with them see what the situation with their homework was. And when kids are small, they're in bed by 7.30 or 8, and I could go back to doing um, paperwork and that kind of that kind of thing. But So, so it's manageable. It was the way, with, but it had to be something that you decided upon. This was like you had to carve it out to be able to make sure you had time. A hundred percent. And I also didn't commute. I've always lived in the city. So if my kid was sick at school, I could have them brought to my office and I'd use up and get everybody else sick in the office too. That's perfect. <laughs> right. Exactly. I'd sequester them somewhere, but yeah. the, the point is I didn't have to drive an hour or two to get home. All right. So I want to thank you. Okay. First and foremost, because I don't know what kind of crazy person wants to become the patellofemoral whisperer, which, <laughs> you know, you have become. So for our listeners, Patellofemoral issues are sort of like the back pain of orthopedic sports medicine. It's not to be disrespectful, but it's just, it's complex. There's a lot of issues that go into it. It's a complicated joint. And most orthopedic surgeons like to try and sort of look the other way or find someone to manage this. So, you know, we want to thank you for, you know, really dedicating a really huge chunk of your academic and clinical practice to figuring this thing out and sort of, I know it's still a work in progress, but so tell us about, you know, why patellofemoral, what drove you to sort of look into that direction? So it's a neglected joint. So yes, it's part of the knee, but it's neglected. And no one, even in my training, and one thing Dr. Russ Warren would say is if he just did the things he learned in his training, he wouldn't be doing any of the surgery that we're doing today. And so 
you know, we keep evolving. And I think of all the fields, at least within sports, the one that's been had the largest changes over the past 20 years is in the in the patellofemoral joint. So when I was a resident, I never saw a patellofemoral replacement. In fact, I never saw a partial knee replacement. They just really weren't done. Um, I never saw an MPFL. We didn't do them. We've only been doing MPFLs for roughly the last 12 years. Um, the surgeries we did didn't work particularly well. Patients weren't particularly happy and it kind of gave the whole field a bad rap because it's no fun to operate on or take care of patients who don't do well. I mean, obviously we all want patients to do well. That's why we went into medicine. And so um, I think being a female in this field, I saw more female patients. So I see a lot of ACLs because girls are much more likely to tear their ACLs than boys in a lot of sports. And same thing for patella and for patellofemoral, both the patellofemoral cartilage issues as well as instability. So I think that's sort of, it happened to me and I embraced it as opposed to <laughs> rejecting. No, and, and it's great because there's so many of us that are like, you know, doing the same thing. Like I learned how to do a tibial tubercle osteotomy uh, back in the day, just because it turned out one of my professors was 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 into the patellofemoral joint. And for our listeners, an MPFL is a medial patellofemoral ligament reconstruction. So you can your kneecap can dislocate. We've all seen those gross videos on Instagram and YouTube where the kneecap pops out. So you can do a surgery to fix that. But you know whether it's the cartilage of the kneecap, whether it's too high, it's too low, it's off to the side. There's so many variables that go in to trying to figure that out. So I mean, I know uh, it's a life's work for you, and it, it continues to evolve at this time. what What's exciting for you right now in the world of patellofemoral syndrome, whether it's surgical, non-surgical, what are you seeing that's really getting you, waking you up in the morning, getting you excited? So non-surgical, I mean, ideally all my patients have sort of exhausted that before they get to me. And so there's plenty of patients who just do just fine. They never need surgery. Um, if we, if we, what I think is more exciting is, um, different ways to repair cartilage. So um, certain things we've had for 20 years, but um, Macy has been around only for about six years where an easier way to transplant your own cartilage, it doesn't work all the time. It doesn't always mature the way we want it to. Nothing's perfect, but that it happens to be a very good graft for the patella. Um, we've, we've used de novo, which is little tiny pieces of um, donor baby cartilage or a baby organ donor's cartilage. Um, that continues to be an issue insurance wise, but we have pretty good data at this point, especially for the patella, um, because nobody's patella is shaped the same as an organ donor. And so when we take a whole osteochondrolograph where it's fully formed cartilage out of somebody else's patella, it's technically challenging and it doesn't necessarily match up as well as if you can sort of seed the defect rather than put in fully formed sod. So I think that those advancements have been pretty um, interesting. Yeah, no, we, need, so again, we need more of them. <laughs> yeah, we, we totally do. So again, for the listeners, I always like to make sure. So Macy is this thing where we take the cartilage cells out of your knee, we can grow it in culture. It's actually a really cool idea. It's been around for probably two decades at this point. And then you can put it back into the patient's knee. So you can grow your own cartilage and put it back in. It works pretty good. Uh, then there's this juvenile cartilage, as you said, the donation of the cartilage. You can sort of mash it up a little bit and put it in. And then then you can do the hair the hair plugs, you know, for, for the head where you take a piece of bone and cartilage from someplace else and then you put it in uh, to that area as well. All really cool ideas. But I think, you know, it'll be so funny 20 years from now, we'll look back on this and say, what were we thinking, right? A hundred percent. And 
you know, we want something that's instantly fixed, meaning that you don't have to wait for it to grow. You don't, it's not a long rehab. And we have some of those um, things sort of in the pipeline, but so far not for the patella, for the trochlea. And the trochlea is the part of the femur that faces the patella. So any joint has two surfaces. And so we're starting to have some more options um, for that. Um, but ultimately, I think the holy grail is getting back what you had to begin with, you know, or not losing it in the first place. So maybe Professor Cole, who is now a professor of what is it, biochemistry at, at Rush or something, was sugar to crazy. But maybe he'll come up with some idea or somebody. The idea would be great if we could, you know, grow these cartilage cells, put them on an antibody, and they just zoop, they go right in and regrow the cartilage right where the problem was. But that's probably not happening in our lifetime. But you know, hopefully down the road. Well, yeah, we're involved typically in a, a clinical trial or two at any one time. So there's a, a new study that we're going to be part of where you um, drill some holes into the bone and then you take some stem cells that have been grown from umbilical cord blood. Patients ask me that all the time. Can I take my kids umbilical cord blood? <laughs> I said, not weird, right now. Weird, weird. But <laughs> if you grow it, amplify it, put it on a matrix. I mean, there, there. I think there'll be some advances in our lifetime that'll work. Well, that's great to know. It's uh, very, you know, definitely gratifying. And and still, you know, I'm keeping you in my Rolodex so that I have all of my patellofemoral patients coming down to New York for you to take care of. Uh, let, let's talk about another, you know, topic which you're you're a big fan of and an expert in as well, and that's the ACL tear. And it's it's interesting, you know, probably up until about five or six years ago. It was pretty much, you know, what graft were you going to use? Is it a, is it going to use the patella? You're going to use the quad? You're going to do the hamstring? We got the tunnels pretty much in the right place. We're kind of all doing the same stuff, but now all of a sudden, you know, we're going to be at OSET and we're going to talk about these panels and are we doing a repair of the ACL? Are we adding in orthobiologics? You know, I'm a big fan of the bear, the bridge enhanced ACL restoration. I know you've been doing that as well. But it just seems to me like we're unsettled territory, which I think is good, you know, as we try to progress to figure out the ACL injury. So give us your thoughts on where you are today for ACL. Well, I think, you know, we just keep being, you know, we keep repeating our mistakes. So, you know, back in the day, they were sewing the ACL. It turned out it didn't work very well. Um, then we were reconstructing it with metal screws and making a very vertical tunnel, but some people twisted around it. Then we made our tunnel really low. Some people like Freddie Fu made two tunnels. And I agree. I feel like most of us at the moment are putting our tunnels in essentially the same place. We're doing it in a less invasive way, but we're still not getting the results that we want to get. I mean, we still know that a good percentage of these patients go on to have arthritis. And certainly I take care of a lot of cartilage defects 10 years down the road after ACL tear and ACL surgery. So I've bare, you know, looks very promising. I've, I've done about 30. And I would say the patients are happy. Patients who've had one of each, like a standard ACL reconstruction and a bear on the other side are really happy. Um, and what we're really trying to do is get things to grow back where they were. Like we don't we don't want it close. We want exactly what you had before. And so that's what is so exciting about bear. Yeah, and you know, I've done about 30 or so as, as well. And, and the same story. Right. The young woman who comes in who had her PT, BTB ACL three years ago, she comes in and they're just like, they're just like, un, they are so happy. They're like bare all the way. You know, each time I shoot a video testimony because they're so excited. Um, and it's really quite remarkable, the difference. And then, you know, the holy grail, 
you know, if it if it turns out that the bear can reduce the incidence of arthritis later on, that would be amazing, right? So that conversation, it, it's really, I, you know, it's funny because it's a new operation, but it's really not new. The technology has been a decade in the making, and it's been through this arduous FDA approval process, the first de novo medical device in orthopedics in, you know, 30 years. So it's actually one of the easier conversations I have with parents and patients when it comes to about, about having the bear. Has that been your experience as well? Yeah, I, I would say certainly at the beginning, I waited for patients to kind of come to me. They'd read about it. Not all of us were doing it. Um, over time, now that I can look back and see how my patients have done, I've been even more enthusiastic about it. But I think when parents hear or a patient hears, I'm not going to weaken anything. I'm not going to harvest your quad. I'm not going to harvest your hamstring. I think, and in their, their own studies, the hamstring harvest patients had only about 65% of their hamstring strength. That's much worse than I've ever quoted a patient. So I think that was very attractive. And also their data that the revisions, if God forbid this doesn't work, the revisions did essentially just as well as a primary. So you're, you're not really burning any bridges. Yes, it's an extra surgery. It's an extra rehab. And I'm not so far knocking what I haven't had a patient fail. Same here. I'm sitting here like anxiously. It's actually kind of fun, like watching them walk in, you know, at two weeks yeah. post-op, they're smiling, they're walking down the hallway, they're not having a lot of pain. And, you know, one of the big knocks is that, well, you can't get them moving very quickly. The first four weeks, there's limitation of motion. But man, when you take the brace and the crutches off, they roll back in and they're like, 3% quad deficit, you know, compared to the other side, they're just, you know, it's pretty cool. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm still, you know, not a hundred percent. I'm a little skeptical, but I'm getting more convinced every day. Um, no, absolutely. And the animal data, I mean, they have only animal data that the arthritis um, progression was far less. And so we're going to have, because they are following these patients out for six years and 10 years. So they're, we're going to have data. They're all going to get MRIs and we're going to be able to compare them. I love that. You know, so much of what we've done, and you said it earlier on in the conversation, we keep repeating the same mistakes and that's because we don't really do a great job studying it and we're not keeping the, the research. So the ongoing research that's going to go on with this, I think will will answer a lot of our questions. Are you a part of Bear Moon? I'm not part of Bear Moon, but I'm, I'm part of the Bear Registry. Got and it. so we are enrolling all of our patients, all our Bear patients, um, in the bear registry. And I, I think that'll be really interesting because unlike the study, the study, everybody had to be within 50 days. Everybody surgery was done exactly with all the exact same surgical techniques. I think most of us have changed our technique a little bit just to, um, at least for me to make it a little bit more like my ACL reconstruction, as far as, um, what types of sutures or what kind of buttons I'm using. And so I think when you start pulling that data, it's going to be really interesting. But they have done 1,500 bears last I checked. I mean, so it's, the, it's not new. I know. And shh, the the failure rate's really low. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's like significantly lower than what we saw in bear one. I'm sorry, bear two and bear three, bear one and bear two. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, how it plays out over time. I, you know, for sure, I'm excited and want to learn more about it. We'll continue to follow it as we go. So, you know, we're we're about ready to close and, and, you know, you brought it up and I wasn't sure if you're going to bring it up or not, but, you know, you are considered probably now the royalty of, you know, the knee cartilage and uh, the patellofemoral joint with your husband, Andreas Gamal, who's also, you know, an incredibly well-respected orthopedic surgeon. So what's it like being married to an orthopedic surgeon? 
So pay, I mean, people will ask, like, isn't it crazy to work together? I, well, most of the time, you know, when you see a doctor, they don't come in with their husband. So we don't go in and see patients together. But do we talk about it at dinner? A hundred percent. I mean, it's it's almost impossible not to walk out of work. And if you saw something unusual that day um, to talk about it. And if he sees something a little unusual, it's definitely, you know, he's showing me the pictures on his phone and vice versa. So we have like grand rounds every day. <laughs> well, we go, well, I've got a case. We're done. We're going offline. I'm sending you some pictures and I want to get your opinion. My wife uh, is, is, a, is a big deal. She just had her first book come out, French Blooms and all things flowers in France. So we can't really talk about orthopedics, but we do you know, share a lot of stuff that are unique in our lives. So I think that's really awesome. Look, Sabrina, what a pleasure talking to you. What a remarkable story. Uh, love the fact that you're an amazing, successful uh, orthopedic surgeon and that you have taken on the patellofemoral joint for the rest of us so you can figure it out and tell us what to do and all of your experience. Uh, what a pleasure talking to you today. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. This is Dr. Scott Sigmund, hashtag follow the fro, host of the Ortho Show. Till next time.